Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to an alternative history show, the podcast, uh, with uh, Richard Forsford. So I am Richard Paulsford. Oh, sorry, what's that? Is that what you're all called? No, no, I'll, I'll, it will all I'm become clear. So. I'm Richard Paulsford. <laughs> and I'm Spartacus. <laughs> now, I am Richard Paulsford, stand-up okay, comedian and rather unprofessional historian. In this show recorded for the It Just So Happened podcast, we will explore some of the historical people associated with and events which happened on this very day in history, which is the 11th of February. That's before we delve into some of the history of the place where today's show is taking place. It's the city with more traffic lights than any other in the UK. That's 358, 162 at junctions and 196 at crossings. And the first city to use traffic lights and traffic wardens on unsuspecting motorists. And it's the city which gave the world Corner Shop, Engelbert Humperdinck and Shawadi Wadi. Yes, it's of course Leicester! So, thanks, Leicester. Um, yes, we are performing this show in the Leicester Comedy Festival. Always innovative, this festival hosts events such as the UK Pun Championships and Silver Stand-Up Competition. And last year, launching the very first UK Kids Comedy Festival. It's now in its 27th year, and this year has over 800 shows taking place in more than 90 venues. Now, the venue tonight for this show is Wigston's House. Situated on Leicester's old high street, it is the city's oldest standing house. Although from the outside it makes you wonder how it is still standing. <laughs> the building has recently been converted into a bar and restaurant opening in March 2017. The ground floor hall and the upstairs rooms, including the space we are in now, forms the oldest part of the building, dating back to 1490. And, talking of making the best use of, of some old material... Let me introduce tonight's panel, uh, one of whom is not here yet, but I'll introduce him anyway, let's just assume he is here. Anyway, we have Lisa Vernon, Kevin Hudson, Rahul Samaya, and Tony Coward, somewhere. somewhere. Our first guest is Lisa Vernon. Now, Lisa has become a very regular guest on this show, having appeared with us at the Ludlow Fringe, the Great Yorkshire Fringe in York, and at the Nottingham Comedy Festival last year. Lisa has worked at the Tower of London, in the room where Charles Dickens was born, and in a toilet museum. <laughs> uh, she's a veritable fountain of historical knowledge on, for example, castles. She's also a budding comedian, and it's great to see you back on the show in Leicester. Over to you, Lisa. Thank you. Okay. Uh, cool. So um, I'll get straight to it, and I'll start with the fact that the English have had a long history have been irritated by the French. Uh, whether or not it was the spectacular conquest like that of the Normans in 1066 or uh, the return match of Agincourt in 1415, we have been not getting on with the French for about a thousand years. Mostly, I think, is because of what they eat. <laughs> Je suis désolé. Je vais critiquer la cuisine française. If you know what that means. See, I used to live in Lyon, and I was a vegetarian. <laughs> in France, chicken. I ordered a pizza once, and it came with little pink bits on it. So I inquired, "Qu'est-ce que c'est?" To be told, "Le nez." Le nez of what? I asked. <laughs> And I'm told that pig nose pizza is a delicacy <laughs> for vegetarians. <laughs> so, to keep such culinary delights from the English doorstep, we have signed a great number of anti-French agreements over the years. In 1689, we signed the Treaty of A Baguette is Not a Real Loaf. <laughs> then... The croissant was invented by the Austrians' treaty of 1701. <laughs> However, today is about the treaty between Henry VIII and the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V on the 11th of February, 1543. Now, to set the scene, Henry is 50, and to be honest, he's not had a great paper round. The years have not been kind. He's about to marry his sixth and, I hope, final wife, 
His waist measures 52 inches, and he's engaged with a bit of rough wooing in Scotland. He has eaten all the pies. <laughs> Quite literally, there was an entire kitchen at Hampton Court dedicated just to pies. He's upset everyone with his marrying, general head choppage, and dissoluting the monasteries. He's rich, and apparently one of the richest monarchs ever, and the one responsible for the most executions. He's rich, but he's not popular in Europe. We all know that feeling. <laughs> I like to think of this as Henry VIII, the Vegas years. His clothes are sparkly, but he can't fit in them. <laughs> and he's very constipated. <laughs> so, the treaty was negotiated between Henry VIII and the Emperor by Eustace Chapneys and uh, Stephen, the Bishop of Winchester. The treaty consisted of 25 articles. You'd be pleased to know I'm not doing all 25. <laughs> I'm going to read just a few for you. So, number one. No complaints of the violation of former treaties shall impair the friendship hereby established. Number two, peace and free intercourse. <laughs> <laughs> know how Henry VIII felt about that? Neither prince to favour any attempt against the other using free intercourse nor to give passage to the enemies, or to receive his rebels or fugitives, or deliver them up within a month when demanded. We won't get over it. Frexit means Frexit. <laughs> <laughs> Number six, no eating but your base. Number 14, henceforth, neither prince shall treat with the French king. Number 20, if the French king will not agree to these covenants, Within ten days, the princess shall jointly initiate war to him. Nice treaty. <laughs> However, later that year, Charles henceforth treated with said French king, conveniently called Francis, uh, and found him to be in possession of a very nice piece of brie, uh, a marvellous Sauvignon, and they established a bit of a bromance. So, Henry VIII of England declared war on France, in response, Francis III prepared, first prepared a fleet to invade England. The opposing naval forces met off the English coast in a tentative encounter that deterred a French invasion, but is chiefly remembered for the sinking of the Mary Rose. In memory, Henry named a sauce after his favourite ship <laughs> and banned the eating of snails. <laughs> Those around him tried to advise him to entreat Charles V, to plead with Francis I, and to get another treaty. But his stance was clear, and he said, beggars can't be Tudors. Apologise for thank you. So it was the 11th of February 1575 when Tycho Bray was offered the island of Havine by King Frederick of Denmark. He was born in 1546, the oldest of 12 siblings, but from the age of two was raised by his aunt and uncle. He became interested in astronomy while studying law at the University of Copenhagen and then at Rostock University's Medical School in Medical Alchemy and Botanical Medicine. Bray was the last of the major naked eye astronomers working without telescopes for his observations. The king, Frederick II, granted Tycho an estate on the island of Hivin, which is now in Sweden, and the funding to build Uraniborg, which was an early research institute named after the Muse of Astronomy. He built large astronomical instruments and took many careful measurements, which indicated that comets must pass through the supposedly immutable celestial spheres and that new stars, or supernova, were not tailless comets in the atmosphere. He correctly saw the moon as orbiting the Earth and the planets as orbiting the Sun, 
but unfortunately mistakenly thought the sun orbited the earth. He founded manufactories such as a paper mill to provide material just for printing his results. The basement, including an alchemical laboratory with 16 furnaces for conducting distillations and other chemical experiments, and using his large herbal garden, he produced several recipes for herbal medicines, using them to treat illnesses such as fever and plague. But he was a bit tyrannical, so he exacted labour from the 50 families who originally lived on the island, had a dungeon fitted uh, to terrorise them, and the Uraniborg cost 1% of all Denmark's GDP. He uh, lived with Kirsten Hansen. She was the daughter of a Lutheran minister. Now, because she was a commoner, he would have lost his noble privileges if they'd formally married, so they didn't, didn't get married. And he also had many illegitimate children with one of his servants. He had a dwarf court jester. He also had a pet elk, which died on a visit to entertain a nobleman at Landskrona. Apparently the elk drunk loads of beer during dinner <laughs> before fatally falling down the stairs. <laughs> Who ever hasn't done that on a night out? Yeah. So James VI of Scotland visited Fenn. He ended up marrying the Danish princess Anne. Another interesting fact about Bray is he had a prosthetic nose. Now it was made of silver or gold, allegedly, he lost the original in a sword duel with his own cousin, a fellow Danish nobleman, while at Rostock. Again, he wasn't done this, where he <laughs> drunkenly quarrelled with his cousin at an engagement party over who was the better mathematician. <laughs> a couple of weeks later, they decided they had to settle the matter with a duel in the dark. <laughs> now, in 1597... Bray moved to Prague after falling out with the new Danish king, Christian IV, in, 15, so in 1597. There he became imperial court astronomer to Rudolf II, the Holy Roman Emperor. Now, Tycho, the way he died was quite interesting. He contracted a bladder or kidney ailment and died 11 days after attending a banquet in Prague. He was 54. Now, it's uncertain whether he unsuccessfully tried to treat himself um, with his alchemy and his, and his herbal remedies, or whether it's because he wanted to relieve himself at the banquet, but due to etiquette, he wasn't allowed to leave the table. By the time he actually returned home, he couldn't urinate, and he died 11 days later. So it was reported that Tycho Ray had written his own epitaph, which was, he lived like a sage and died like a fool. <laughs> now, he's got a crater named after him on the moon and another one on Mars. He also has a minor planet and a supernova and a planetarium in Copenhagen named after him. As a postscript, as it were, when his body was exhumed for various reasons in 2012, they got his nose and found out it was made of brass. Oh. But gold and silver noses were usually only worn for special occasions. <laughs> so our second guest tonight is Kevin on my right here. He described himself as a poet, comedian and accountant, or at least he did last year. Um, still are, good. Uh, he's been working at the stand-up comedy and poetry for about four years now and was a guest panellist on the very first ever show in this very venue last year. Kevin grew up in Birmingham but has lived in Leicester for more than a quarter of a century. So I don't know if that makes you a local by now. Do you feel like a local? Season ticket holder, yes. Over to you. For more than 20 years, I have to say. You know, Riders are so good, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Moving on. Uh, I have to apologise to you and, and, and to Richard as well, really, because uh, I haven't put the effort into this that I probably should have done. Um, essentially, all I've done is I've just copied and pasted from Wikipedia. So <laughs> We all do that. Um, cit citation needed uh, is, is what I would say. Um, on this day in, uh, in 1975, uh, history was made when Margaret Hilda Thatcher <laughs> was elected as leader of the Conservative Party becoming the UK's first female political leader and subsequently first female Prime Minister. Now, I don't really do um, political stuff. I've got really no interest in, in, in politics. Um, but it was probably a few, month, a few months back I, I, I um, actually attended the Market Harborough um, and Area um, Conservative Association annual S&M party. <laughs> um, things got, uh, I have to say, things got a little bit out of hand and uh, at the end of the night there were three people taken to hospital to have the whips removed. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So, uh, Thatcher was married to Dennis Thatcher, who's uh, 10 years older than her, uh, and his Wikipedia entry lists him as the first husband of a British Prime Minister. <laughs> Not a huge amount of competition there, similar to uh, poet, comedian, accountants, to be honest, but there you go. <laughs> um, they married in 1951, while Dennis was a major in the army. So, in the 1950s, she was screwing a major. <laughs> and then in the 1980s, she was screwing the minors. <laughs> Although, to be fair, in the 1980s, uh, Thatcher wasn't the only one getting into trouble with minors. <laughs> <laughs> while, at, uh, while at Oxford University, Thatcher developed a, a strong dislike of mathematicians, famously declaring, this lady's not for touring. <laughs> Interesting quiz, well, I think it's interesting. Quiz fact for you. Um, Thatcher is the only British Prime Minister to have married a divorcee. There you go. Should you ever get asked that? Stunned silence in the room. <laughs> Most people just writing that down. Uh, incidentally, Dennis's first wife was also called Margaret, as indeed was his mother, his guinea pig, <laughs> and his auntie Margaret. <laughs> Thatcher was nicknamed the, uh, the Iron Lady because every Sunday night she would iron Dennis's underpants while they watched Bergerac together. <laughs> well, although she would also iron his trousers, she refused to shorten them, famously declaring, this lady's not for turnips. <laughs> she was known for her efficiency, giving birth only once but producing twins, one with no penis and the other with, and the other with no sense of direction. Or moral values. <laughs> she, uh, she worked in industry prior to politics, and while there, she achieved a number of things of note. Uh, you may know that she developed a method for making soft ice cream, uh, but she also developed a system for speeding up the incubation period for chicken's eggs, uh, after which she became known as Thatcher the Hatcher. <laughs> <laughs> While working for Colgate, she created a process for putting stripes in toothpaste, uh, but was dismissed uh, for only using blue stripes. <laughs> uh, in 1971, while education minister, she became known as Thatcher the Milk Snatcher after she withdrew free milk from school children in an attempt to save money to fund tax cuts that had been promised in the, uh, in the election. Uh, she later enforced tough truancy rules and became known as Thatcher the Child Catcher. <laughs> She did later regret the milk decision and persuaded Zayed bin Sultan al-Nayan, father of current Manchester City owner Sheikh Mansour, to fund the replacement of free milk scheme, resulting in a massive drop in male truancy and leading to the headline in the sun, Maggie's milk shake brings all the boys back to the yard. <laughs> <laughs> Wikipedia, citation needed. <laughs> During the Cod Wars of the 1970s, Thatcher was for forceful in her defence of UK fishing waters and confessed herself partial to a fish supper. There was only one fish she didn't like, famously declaring, this lady's not for tuna. <laughs> Tradition of a Downing Street cat was started by Dennis Thatcher in 1981 when, on the steps of Downing Street, uh, he, he introduced the world's press to their new tabby, Margaret. <laughs> this led to many hilarious misunderstandings, including one episode when the Prime Minister went to the vets and the cat ended up being interviewed on Radio 4's Today programme. <laughs> Despite saying nothing during the five-minute interview, the cat was interrupted a record 73 times by John Humphreys. <laughs> she was well known for her cooking and regularly held dinner parties at number 10, but rarely served root vegetables. Famously declaring, this lady's not for turnips. <laughs> she opened the new wing at the Royal Academy in 1985, dedicated to 19th... This is getting very convoluted. Dedicated to 19th century... What do I mean, getting? Dedicated to 19th century English land and marine scape artists. It is reported that she didn't much care for the pictures. Famously declaring, this lady's not for Turner. <laughs> There used to be a plaque to Mrs Thatcher on the, uh, on the wall in Grantham, but it was removed one night with someone with a big brush and some toothpaste. Ironically, one with a red stripe. Yes, mate. Plaque. Toothpaste. <laughs> and as we look back at Thatcher's life and achievements, I'm sure that whatever your political views, 
we can all agree that my time's up. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. No, because Tony's not here, I'm going to skip ahead to this one. Yeah. 2002, Brazilian-born internet entrepreneur Camilo Agassim Pereira, a resident of Florida, was bequeathed Lam Island, a small uninhabited island about 330 by 160 feet, which lies between the islands of Fidra and Craigleith in the Firth of Forth in Scotland. The islands were all formed by volcanic activity millions of years ago. Now, this chap never actually set foot on his island and put it up for sale in 2008. Now, television presenter and self-proclaimed psychic Yuri Geller said he felt he had a strong urge to buy it. He'd been heavily influenced by Jeff Nisbet, who had claimed that these three islands are arranged in precisely the same way as the layout of the pyramids at Giza, built by the pharaohs four and a half thousand years ago. Nisbet also claimed he discovered that anyone standing on the battlefield at Bannockburn back in 1314, where Robert the Bruce defeated the English army. Now, if on the anniversary of the battle, on 24th of June, you would see the three stars of Orion's belt rise exactly over those three islands of Craigleith, Lamb and Fidra. And there were other claims that Lamb had also links to King Arthur and to the ancient kings of Ireland. So Geller himself said, there are many clear synchronicities that come together on Lamb Island. I've heard it said that the bloodline of the Scottish kings, and so that of Queen Elizabeth II herself, can be traced back to the pharaohs and to the Jewish <laughs> patriarch Noah of Noah's Ark through an ancient prince and princess called Gaethalos and Scota. I like to think that when they landed in Scotland, the first place they moored was in the Firth of Forth off Lamb Island. However, Geller wasn't a popular purchaser. He had previously claimed to have used his psychic powers to manipulate the outcome of the England versus Scotland football match in 1996, which Scotland had lost. So he wasn't very popular in Scotland. But eventually bought the island on this day in 2009 for £30,000. Uh, Geller says that he has absolutely no doubt he will find treasure on Lamb Island, hidden by Scota, the half-sister of Pharaoh Tutankhamun, three and a half thousand years ago, and he plans to locate it by divining. This treasure will include metal, diamonds, sapphires and gold. However, a Scottish government spokeswoman said... Geller would require consent to dig from Scottish natural heritage unless he already had planning permission from a local authority or written permission from a designated regulatory authority. There you go. A very British story in the end. So, uh, so now we're back to uh, Rahul. Now Rahul uh, tells me he's born and bred in Leicester. He's a stand-up comedian whose material explores his Asian background, the way he talks and his quest for love. He's reached the semi-finals of both the Chortle Student Comedy Award and the Cavendish Arms Max Turner Prize, as well as third place in the Barrel of Laughs New Act competition. And you also run and host the Rasmatas Comedy Club, which meets at the Globe third Sunday of every month, I believe. Yeah. Over to Rahul. Thank you. Yep, that's right. Semi-finals twice. I'm halfway to being funny. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So um, I was thinking about what to do this about. Because as you can all see in the audience, uh, I've clearly lived through a lot of Feb 11th. Um, but then I was researching and uh, I, had, I had a light bulb moment. Because uh, on Feb 11th, 1847, Thomas Edison was born. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I reached semi-finals. <laughs> cool, so I thought I'd talk about a few events that have happened on, on this day. So in 1826, University College London was founded. And this is very important to me because I attended UCL. I went there. I studied chemistry. Uh, I loved it, but obviously, you know, being Indian, uh, my parents just uh, pushed me towards stand-up. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be here. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> but yeah, I like to I like to think that coming out of UCL, 
now I've, been, I've gone through the through stand up a bit, few semi finals. Uh, you know, I think I am the the most famous Indian alumnus of UCL. I'm gonna say it. <laughs> I'm gonna say it. I mean, who's the the only one maybe like that might closely follow me was I don't know some bloke called Mahatma Gandhi. <laughs> I don't know if you heard of him. He did some work with like Indian independence and stuff. But I never met him. Different graduation days. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Gandhi. Gandhi was actually close friends with uh, Nelson Mandela, who on February 11th, 1990, was released from prison after spending 27 years there. I've been to the gym, right? <laughs> I know I don't look it, but... <laughs> yeah, I want someone... I, I want for someone do the plank, and then after 10 seconds, give up. You can't do that when Nelson Mandela's done 27 years in prison, can you? Imagine a job interview and an employer asked the question, give a time when you had to experience some hardship, but you persevered and you had to follow Nelson Mandela. You would be screwed. Nelson Mandela went to prison for other people. Right? Just remember that next time someone nicks your chips. Alright? <laughs> what else happened? In 1978, China lifted censorship bans on Shakespeare and Aristotle. But apparently Rebecca Black's Friday was completely fine. <laughs> Feb 11th is three days away from Valentine's. So people who wanted to do some online shopping for gifts are screwed. <laughs> Thinking of a, a, a knockout joke to end on. Um, but I couldn't find anything as good as... Uh, on Feb 11th, 1990, when Buster Douglas knocked down Mike Tyson. That's a true underdog story. Oh, where's, where's Tony when you need him? Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's it for me. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Thank you, Rahul. Uh, well, it's half past. We're coming to the second half of the show, so in a way that's working quite well without Tony. Um, in the second half of the show, I uh, haven't talked about the date of the show. We now talk about the place where we are meeting, which is Leicester. And we uncover some alternative histories of Leicester. Now, uh, from what I know, Leicester's been... Con oh, and Tony's here! <laughs> Come on, you've, you've, you've obviously researched some stuff, so do sit down and do your bit. Straight into it. They <laughs> <laughs> oh, say the secret of comedy is timing. Yeah, it's all in timing, so you've got a mic. Uh, so I've just been searching for somewhere to park, and I've uh, just walked from Derby. Yeah. <laughs> was it cheaper? <laughs> cheaper parking in Derby. Yeah. Just spaces in Derby. Yeah. Yeah. So let me introduce you, Tony, as you catch your breath. Uh, Tony is a one-liner stand-up comedian and compere. He was once placed third in the English Comedian of the Year competition. And he's hosted comedy nights for the military, from the Irish Guards to the Royal Army Dental Corps, to top brass at Norwood HQ. He's an ardent follower of Ipswich Town FC, so the club must have led him into some pretty dark places in recent seasons, I'd imagine. But, uh, yeah, places like Accrington. <laughs> yes, very dark. <laughs> and Sunderland. Yeah. Yes, so over to you, Tony Cowles, thank you. Are you handing me over to do my... Yeah. To do your... Are you ready? I, I've seen you prepared something. Yeah, right, yes. Something. Whether I've got the breath to read it out. So, uh, so yeah. So, um, on this day, ladies and gentlemen, in AD 55, um, the Roman Emperor Tiberius Claudius Caesar Britannicus died in suspicious circumstances, aged just 13, uh, presumably because everyone was fed up with having a teenage emperor. Can you imagine all the strops, the slamming of doors, the raging hormones? It had been a bit like being ruled by Boris Johnson. <laughs> so, right, let's start at the basics. His name, Tiberius. Uh, apparently his parents were massive fans of Star Trek. <laughs> Tiberius Claudius Caesar Britannicus. Uh, isn't that pretty much the most Roman name ever? <laughs> a bit more Roman than that. Um, actually, his name originally ended with the surname Germanicus to commemorate his grandfather, Drusus the Elder's victory over the Germanic tribes. 
but then two years after his birth, it was changed to Britannic Britannicus to coincide with the release of the famous encyclopedias. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and his father Claudius's conquest of Britain. Um, his father Claudius was a bit of a player and ended up marrying... You can see I'm down with the kids. Was <laughs> a bit of a player and ended up marrying four times. Uh, in fact, his third wife, Messalina, was Britannicus's mother. And she was... She was eventually forced to kill herself, which is a pretty extreme form of assisted suicide. <laughs> Basically, because she'd been having an affair and she was, uh, she had actually become a bigamist. Uh, apparently, a guard gave her a knife and helped her plunge it into her neck. <laughs> so yeah, fairly extreme assisted suicide. Um, so. Uh, yeah, and this, this allowed Claudius to uh, marry his fourth wife, Agrippa the Younger, who also had a son of similar age who was called... This is very confusing with Romans, because they had the one name and then they changed it to another. But his son, her son was called Lucius Domitus, who later became more famous as Nero. Probably heard of him as Nero, who, of course, was famous for his love of coffee. And <laughs> <laughs> Nero became a rival to Britannicus's claim to the throne, and by many accounts was more popular, with the more popular of the two, uh, probably due to his loyalty scheme. Uh, <laughs> where if you bought six favours from him, you got the seventh free. <laughs> Nero then married Britannicus's sister in the ultimate dick move. Uh, well, I say that ultimate dick move until he actually poisoned his stepfather, Claudius, in order to seize power. Not bad for someone who was still six months from turning 14 and becoming a man under Roman law himself. Pretty good girl, isn't he? He married, married his stepsister and killed his stepfather. Um, I'm sure... It seems a bit more Greek than Roman, to be honest. But, um, <laughs> at first, Nero was basically a puppet who did his mother Agrippa's bidding, but during his consulship, he became more independent, uh, even starting a relationship with a slave girl. Nero would continue to try to undermine Britannicus. Uh, he tried to embarrass him in front of his friends uh, by getting uh, Britannic, uh, sorry, asking Britannicus to sing a song. Um, but Britannicus actually managed to turn it around by, uh, by s improvising a sick rap <laughs> <laughs> about, about how Nero was actually a bit of a git. Uh, of course, in true Game of Thrones style, this sealed Britannicus's fate, and Nero got the same person who he got to poison Cl Claudius to whack Britannicus <laughs> one, day, one day before his 14th birthday, because obviously on his 14th birthday he would have become a man and would have been able to take the take throne. Um, and that was pretty much it for Britannicus. As I say, he was born on this day and was killed obviously one day before today. Um, and, and then Nero went on to rule for 13 years and became the last of the Julio-Claudian dynasty. There we go. Thank you, Tony. Thank you. So now we do come to the second half of the show. <laughs> we uncover some alternative histories of Leicester. Leicester has been continuously occupied for more than 2,000 years and is one of the oldest cities in the UK. It started as an Iron Age settlement near the River Saw before the Roman occupation. The city was named Rate, uh, possibly something to do with being bad-tempered and irritable. Um, at one time, the Saw River in Leicester used to be coloured pink. This was apparently caused by waste from textiles production. The city's environmental officer didn't have the guts to stand up to the factory owners about it, so the pink pollution could be said to have happened all because of this one big girl's blouse. <laughs> <laughs> but in this show, we want to concentrate on some of the historical firsts for Leicester, or some of the biggest things from its history. So number one, apparently... Uh, this is where the panel can come in if they want to. The English language we use today originated in Leicester. Experts believe that 1,000 years ago in Leicester, the heart of England, the warring Anglo-Saxons and Vikings set aside their differences and the two communities started sharing their trades and, and languages and helped to shape modern standard English. And if it wasn't for this, we would probably still use an Anglo-Saxon style of language more similar to German. 
Uh, it's just such a shame that the English used in Leicester a thousand years ago hasn't moved on much since then. <laughs> <laughs> so the Leicester dialect is unique and it's clipped vowels and phrases. So can the panel, uh, one or two of whom are very local, can you help me with these please? So first of all, a up me ducks, what does that mean? A up. A up me ducks. Well, well actually what it means is there anything <laughs> up, but it's shortened to a up as in uh, a up, you're in. <laughs> it, means, <laughs> it means what for? Are you okay, sir? Right, okay. Are you okay, yeah, sir? So the translation I've got here is good day, uh, madam, also. <laughs> <laughs> so, number two, what does this mean? I ain't yon. Have I said that right? I, I ain't yon. You having a stroke? Have <laughs> 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 I not done my research properly? Are you. Well, I'm cheating because I can read that. Yeah, but don't read that. <laughs> that's, that's, you what, that's what you get from Brummies. Arit. Arit Yon. Arit Yon. Are you all right? It means, are you all right? Yeah, it means, excuse Ronald. me, but does that belong to your good self? Shall <laughs> <laughs> I? Oh, oh, I said it wrong. Is that Good, a bit of audience interaction, is it? It's not a big yawn. Arit Yon. Okay, I'm not going to get this third one right then. <laughs> okay, let's let's give this a go anyway. Gun geras a punit for the guzgogs. Oh, I know that. Yeah. I know that one. It, do go to the market and buy a punit of gooseberries from Gary Lineker's father. <laughs> I think you put more into it than there actually was. <laughs> yes. Please, kind sir, do fetch me a punit for those gooseberries. So, well done, Lisa. Uh, now, with the recent storms, I was checking the local weather forecast earlier, and it said, it's black over Bill's mother. Yeah. Uh, I've no idea what it means, but it doesn't sound good to me. So there's a storm coming. I know a little bit about that, actually. Yeah, yeah so I think it's Bill was, um, was King William. Um, and King William's mother was from... Someone else helped her. Was it Germany Normandy. or Holland? Normandy. Somewhere? William so, the Conqueror? Or? No, William of Orange. Oh, William of Orange, so that would have been Orange. The clues are the name. What? He was born in an orange. He was born in France. It's orange. looking a bit orange oh, over Bill's mother's. So, so I think what it was was if, the, if it was dark clouds over to the east, so the continent, it meant there was bad weather coming to Britain. Not funny, but <laughs> we try to do both in the show. Education as well as funny. I think it's applied now to just anywhere over there. If it's like east. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't know. <laughs> just over there, there's bad weather over there. It's a bit. I mean, we had it in Birmingham as well. That's yeah. so. So it's obviously travelled. That's West, though, isn't it? Anyway, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm totally confused, totally disorientated. Uh, right, second one, Thomas Cook. Um, sorry if that's a bit of a downer now, but uh, <laughs> the first, the first, uh, the first package train journey. So Thomas Cook single-handedly industrialised railway tourism is one uh, description I got. What was the What was the first trip on the fifth of July, eighteen forty-one? Does anyone know about this? I should have a slide. Yeah. 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 So what was? Oh, the audience had answered. Said the panel. So what? What was the trip for? What was it? Why? Why were they going to Loughborough? It was a temper to kick massive. We don't need a panel, do we? Yeah, you chartered a train. Well, I've seen different stories about different things. I think they're all different things happening. But anyway, he chartered a train to take 540 passengers about the 10 miles from Leicester Campbell Street railway station on the newly opened Midlands Counties Railway to the neighbouring town of Loughborough and it was uh, for a temperance meeting. Some say he was a Baptist minister and others said he was a cabinet maker. He was a very busy man. This <laughs> um, how much was the round trip? Four and six. Four and six. Uh, a shilling and sixpence. Seven and a half pence. So, uh, for many of the participants, the attraction was just the opportunity to travel by train. It was the first time anyone had ever done it. Uh, later on, Cook organised for 150,000 travellers from rural England to attend the Great Exhibition in 1851 in London, which no doubt helped to make it a success. And even later on, went on to offer trips further afield. The first party of British travellers on a trip to Egypt and Palestine in 1869. 
That's, that's quite a big jump, isn't it, from Loughborough to Egypt? <laughs> let's face it, when you see Loughborough. <laughs> the ninth wonder of the world. Yes, the ninth. What's the eighth? <laughs> the, um, the collection of mummies in the Ewart Museum were fetched back by Thomas Cook. So four mummies, a head and a hand. Oh. Which is handy. <laughs> You'd nothing like through customs, would you? Yeah. Not, now, like... <laughs> not now, but then it was like, oh yeah, yeah, just, just put that in his suitcase. Did you pack this yourself? <laughs> yes. <laughs> My mummy helped. The classic, <laughs> classic stunt party, bringing back all those sorts of things. <laughs> I, guess, I guess bringing back the mummy is a really good example of a package holiday. <laughs> <laughs> Got it wrapped, haven't they? It's a... It's a shame they stopped at Loughborough because if they'd stayed on the train they could have gone to Beeston. There's a really lovely pub at Beeston. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Just saying. Yeah. It's not very popular. Anything else on Thomas Cook before I move on? Leicester has the largest outdoor covered market in Europe, which confuses me slightly. It's outdoors but covered. But anyway, uh, by an amazing coincidence, it's on a street known as Marketplace. Isn't that amazing? Uh, just south of the clock town. It's around 800 years old and was moved to the current site around 700 years ago. Uh, allegedly, some of the fruit is not much younger. <laughs> uh, the market is protected by a royal charter that goes back to its origin over 700 years ago. This prohibits other markets from operating within a specified distance of Leicester Market. So, panel, what is that distance? How far away are you allowed to have a market? When, when Just take this, a guess. When no, well, now. I think it's now. All right. But when yeah, is it brought in, do you know? Is it, yeah. it, is it, is it, was it no, 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 no. Is it like seven leagues? <laughs> no, uh, well, it's in miles. Six. Yeah, six. And you can read my screen. Can I wasn't reading. Well, six and two thirds. Six and two thirds miles. So that's quite a distance if you're on foot. So the first definitive mention of the market dates back to 1298 when... A market took place bounded by the city walls and the corn wall. However, the marketplace is called Cheapside in the Doomsday Book, which derives from the Danish word cheap, which is to sell. So presumably, cheap cheap was a market for small birds. <laughs> in 1589, Queen Elizabeth I mentioned the market in a charter, referring to it as the Saturday Shambles which coincidentally for many years was also the nickname for Leicester City FC. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, okay, uh, Derby County. Then. Um, uh, enough for that. Oh no, sorry, uh, Nottingham Forest then, I don't know. That's all right. The, oh, yeah. the former indoor market built in 1973 was a multi-level building containing the fish market and delicatessen and stalls before being demolished between between December 2014 and June 2015. Why did it take so long? Uh, <laughs> uh, and the level, the level site turned into New Market Square. Now, uh, as has already been mentioned, it was famously once home to Lineker's Fruit and Veg Store, on which Gary Lineker worked part-time with his dad, Barry. Uh, obviously, Gary had other goals in life. Oh. <laughs> Come on. Uh, and Charles and Camilla visited the market today. Yeah. Do we know that? Yes. Uh, now, what did they buy? Royal Gala, presumably, uh, yeah. a few Prince Edwards. <laughs> what a pair. <laughs> so, uh, anything, anything on the market, panel? Have we visited the market? We have visited all? the market. I, I used to work on the market. You used to work on the market? Yeah, That's I used impressive. to work on the market. And I've got absolutely nothing funny to tell you about. <laughs> <laughs> Apart you have from, a... I, I can't do the shouting. Off and off, you have a market voice. What? Market, uh, yeah, you yeah. Have, you do have a market voice. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, wow. Well, that's, yeah. that, that's gone right off the scale on the recorder. <laughs> uh, we don't need these. Anything else? No, but I've got... I'll tell you something about the river, because we've skipped on from that. <laughs> oh, <sorry. laughs> Pick your topic. Take a step back. Yeah. Yeah, I'm allowed to do that. Go back. Yeah, go on. Yeah. Scooby-Doo style. As long as you're speaking to the mic. Um, I, I used to row on the river. Oh. Before, after it was pink. Yeah. And um, I was in the rowing club. And we had T-shirts that said on them, saw, because that's the river, saw, cocks, hand, and then on the back it said Vaseline. <laughs> <laughs> Just thought I'd share that with you. 
or with me <laughs> first Because <lady. laughs> you might need that later. <laughs> okay, well, we're rapidly moving on. <laughs> so, is that a sponsorship uh, deal? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's sponsored by Vaseline. Yeah. <laughs> so, Walker's Crisp, the biggest crisp manufacturer in the world. Uh, it's been frying potatoes less of 71 years and now runs uh, this factory, which is in apparently the Leicester district of Beaumont Lees. Uh, you can smell it before you see it, I'm told. Um, <laughs> Must be a joke in there somewhere. I don't know. Uh, you mean Beaumont Lees or the factory? Well, I don't know. You tell me. I'm not familiar. Uh, the factory scrubs, washes, and slices 40 tonnes of potatoes every hour, and produces seven million packets of crisps a day. Uh, but what about its history? Well, Mr. Henry Walker was a successful butcher from Mansfield in England. He relocated in the 1880s to run a shop in Leicester. Walker's operation eventually began making meat pies and sausages and was moved to Cheapside in 1912. Now, with meat rationing after World War II, he had to diversify, and the story goes, he originally thought of making ice cream, but he didn't have enough room in his fridges. So under the guidance of managing director R.E. Gerard, the firm began frying potato slices in a fish fryer in 1948. In 1954, the same year that meat rationing ended, the best-selling cheese and onion flavour crisps were introduced. Thank God for that. In 1989, PepsiCo acquired Walkers, and in 1993, PepsiCo merged Walkers and Smiths. Do we go boo at that point or not? I don't know. But Smiths actually goes further back than Walkers. Frank Smith was the manager of a large grocery store at the end of the 19th century, then as the manager for a Smithfield wholesale grocery business, which introduced potato crisps, a relatively new product from 1913. At his request, he was appointed head of the crisp, head of the crisp department. I'm not making that up. <laughs> he wanted to establish a chain of factories, but his employer declined. So Smith raised £10,000 with two friends and started making his own crisps from 1919. Anyway, enough of crisps. Uh, I'm doing too much talking. Got any crisp jokes? I mean, you must have yeah. crisp jokes. Well, I've actually, I've actually come up with a, uh, a new flavour of crisps, and if they're successful, I could make a packet. <laughs> Good. I love how that just killed the room. Is, uh, is, is peanuts all right? Can we do a peanuts joke? Yeah. Is that all right? Go ahead, yeah. I was on the train the other day. I wanted a packet of peanuts. So when I got a packet of peanuts, see it, say it, salted. <laughs> <laughs> Could have been say it, say it sauteed, but they'd be very posh crisps then, wouldn't they? Mm -hmm. Well, that's kill the room as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> we can edit out the silences, it's fine. Um, <laughs> anything else on crisps? Gary Lippa from uh, Beaumont Leaves, is that right? Oh, did you know that? No, just say, say it is. Oh, it's fine. No, nobody knows. It's There's no joke. No one I mean, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's why he's so good at football. Oh, we'll get out. <laughs> so, he not, not only sells crisps, but smells of crisps as well. Oh, I just assume I haven't met him. That's yeah. such a good insult, isn't it? You smell of crisps. <laughs> <laughs> That's what flavour. Cheese and onion. Yeah. You smell of cheese and onion crisps. I find that quite attractive, but, you know. It's... <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Just me. No, I used to go out with somebody who liked to put crisps in the bed. <laughs> We've moved on to your other material. At this point. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's another first. Uh, Leicester had the first local radio station. BBC Radio started as local radio, partly because at first it was technically impossible to retransmit the same programme to different areas. The local programmes were appreciated, but by the early 1930s, as the airwaves became more crowded and interference increased, the BBC abandoned local radio and the first national and regional services were born. But then there was pirate radio in the 1960s, and that prompted the BBC to draw up a new plan. This included the creation of Radio 1 and local radio. Now, at the time, there were three BBC networks. They were called Home, Light and Third. And these were renamed, thankfully, Radio 4, 2 and 3, which is much easier to say. Now, BBC Radio Leicester was the first of the new wave of BBC local radio stations introduced in the 1960s. It began broadcasting at 12.45pm on the 8th of November 1967 on 95.05 VHF from a transmitter located on Gorse Hill above the city centre, with a jingle, which was a version of the post-horn gallop. Question panel, 
Where in Leicester can you regularly expect to hear the post horn gallop plate? Ooh, 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 King Power. At yeah, the yeah, King Power, oh, that's correct, yeah. Um, at the King Power Stadium. Before, in, before uh, the football, football starts, yeah. as the, as the yeah. teams come out, they've got a guy who plays it live. Yeah. Can I just uh, say something about yeah. the music that teams run out so much? As you said at the start, I'm an Ipswich Town fan, and uh, for years, Ipswich Town used to run out to a piece of music that I think had been chosen purely because of the title. This is a piece of music called Entrance of the Gladiators. It sounds amazing, doesn't it? It sounds brilliant, Entrance of the Gladiators, for two football teams to run out to prepare to do battle. Uh, until you hear that piece of music, and it's more commonly associated with clowns running out at a circus. <laughs> <laughs> it's called Entrance of the Gladiators, but it actually goes... That's genuinely true, yeah. When I used to go to Port Moreau as a kid, that's what the teams were out to. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> no, not anymore. Do they have really big football boots? Yeah. <laughs> you beat me to it. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Right then. It was followed by a speech by the Postmaster General, and uh, guests included the Lord Mayor of Leicester and senior BBC staff from London. Radio Leicester's first ever news bulletin was broadcast next, but members of the Free Radio Association carried out a protest about the loss of the pirate stations, which had been broadcast from the ships um, to avoid the requirement for a UK licence. Eight experimental stations then opened in cities, including Nottingham, at first, Radio Leicester made less than four hours of local programmes each day, and the first major challenge was city flooding in 1968, and they had to have live reports uh, from rowing boats floating down suburban streets. <laughs> <laughs> sounds totally strange, but anyway. According to Ray Jar, the station has a weekly audience of 167,000 listeners. Do we have any in the audience, the regular listeners? 6.2% share, apparently. And the station moved to new premises just around the corner from here, or opposite sorry, at St Nicholas sorry. Place. Can I just yeah. Yeah. You said six point. What's that? Six point two percent share. Share. Uh, share. So they, sh they play a lot. Of do we believe in life after life? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Perhaps they need to update their playlist to get <laughs> DJs have a sonny disposition, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yes, that's probably enough about the radio. And uh, incidentally, the month after Radio Leicester first broadcast, there was a panel game which started on Radio 4 called Just a Minute. And Nicholas Parsons, who just sadly passed away, was the temporary stand-in chairman, and 50 years later was still doing it. <laughs> so it was quite interesting. Yeah. Anything else on the radio? Can I I'll squeeze uh, in one more topic? I've won off week um, on Thursday. Yeah? Yeah, I've won week three left. Go on here. No. Well, we'll listen to it. We just established that. So. Well, I've been waiting time. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, um, I was just wondering what they used to play on the uh, pirate radio. But it was mostly R. Kelly. That means it's just shit, though, isn't it? <laughs> right. Have I got time for Daniel Lambert? Does anyone have to rush off? No. Okay. One famous person, Daniel Lambert, who was at the time the biggest person in Britain. So let me tell you a little bit about him. He was born in Blue Boar Lane on 13th of March 1770. He worked as his father's assistant at the Leicester Goal until it closed in 1805. He was a keen swimmer, extremely strong. What? Am I the only person confused in this room? So at Leicester and Goal, they don't go together. Is that what you're trying to say? You don't know what a goal is. He used to work at the finer side goals. That's the first time I've been heckled at any of my shows. It's probably auto-corrected jail to goal. No, it's less than goal. English spelling. No. He definitely works. Look, we don't have time for this. I'm sorry. He was a keen swimmer, extremely strong. A swimmer from jail. And an expert in sporting animals. I'm going to battle on here. He was widely respected for his expertise with dogs, horses, and fighting cocks. No jokes On one occasion, his dog hit a dancing. Oh, sorry. On one occasion, his dog bit a dancing bear on display in the street. 
The bear knocked the dog to the ground. Lambert asked its keeper to restrain it so he could retrieve his wounded animal. But the keeper removed the bear's muzzle so it could attack the dog. Horrible so far. <laughs> Lambert reportedly struck the bear with a pole and with his left hand, punched its head, knocking it to the ground, and the dog escaped. Happy ending. Just <laughs> 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 see that sort of thing every Saturday night. Then. <laughs> yeah. I've just been hearing it. So it's a whole com- new slant on the idea of bare knuckle fighting. So he was 5 feet 11 inches tall, but in 1805, when he left the jail, <laughs> he was, uh, had been put on this weight for no obvious reason, and by that time he weighed at 50 stone. So became the heaviest authenticated person in recorded history at that point. He officially overtook Edward Bright, the so-called Fat Man of Malden, <laughs> who had weighed a mere 616 pounds or 279 kilos. Take that, Fat Man of Malden. Um, Lambert was sensitive about his bulk, so he became a bit of a recluse until he moved to London to put himself on show for money because he he'd lost his job at the goal. <laughs> uh, for five hours a day, he received about 400 visitors who were each charged a shilling. They were impressed by his intelligence and personality, and it became quite the fashion to visit him in his department to discuss sport, dogs, and animal husbandry. He was so big, it was shown that six men of normal size could fit together inside his waistcoat, and each of his stockings was the size of a sack. But he reportedly disliked changing his clothes, even if wet after a swim, so that would have been a somewhat unpleasant thing to try. Particularly if you'd been swimming in the salt. Yes, he had a certain pink tinge <laughs> yeah. uh, People would travel long distances to see him. On one occasion, 14 people made the trip from Guernsey. <laughs> uh, uh, there was a life-size waxwork of Lambert displayed in London. Must have taken a lot of wax. And he became extremely popular with cartoonists who would depict him as John Bull. He mixed with the upper classes and even had a visit from the King George III. Yeah. So uh, he returned to Leicester in September 1806, where he bred sporting dogs and regularly attended events, taught swimming, and it said that he was able to stay afloat with two grown men sitting on his back while floating in the saw, presumably. (laughs) So he then had to go on another series of short fundraising tours, uh, and he was in Stamford on the 21st of June 1809, the age of 39, when he died suddenly. He got up in the morning, had his usual shave, complained of breathing difficulties, and then 10 minutes later collapsed and died. His weight at that time had reached 52 stone and 11 pounds. His coffin required, uh, I don't don't know how much this is, 112 square feet of wood. Despite the coffin being built with wheels and a sloping approach being dug to the grave, (laughs) this is in Stamford, it took 20 men almost half an hour to drag his casket into the trench. The coffin was so large to get it out of the inn where he'd been residing or staying overnight, the newly opened burial ground was at the rear of, the, of this building. Uh, the window and the wall of his apartment had to be demolished. So there are several pubs and businesses in Leicester named after him. Does that sound familiar? Is that true? I'm not, not so familiar with that. Okay. He's a popular figure in Stamford. The local football team is Stamford AFC. They're nicknamed the Daniels after him. And there's a set of Lambert's clothes together with his armchair, walking stick, riding crop and prayer book on permanent display at the Newark Houses Museum, which is in Leicester. I was there today. How strange. I never saw that. Anyway. (laughs) It's huge. I was trying to do my research. It was so so huge. How could I have missed it? Uh, Anything on Lambert before we close the show? Last chance panel. He worked at the jail. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, described, it describes him as a jail keeper, which is a bit confusing because if you Google that, yeah, I, I, go, I, Google, I, Google, I couldn't remember his name today, but I remembered he was the jail keeper. So I Googled Leicester jail keeper and came up with this picture of Casper Schmeichel. <laughs> Please just thank all the guests we've had tonight Lisa Vernon, Kevin Hudson, Ralph Sonia, and Tony Cowards. I'd like to thank Leicester Comedy Festival and Richardson's House for hosting us. I've got the final on this day. Thomas Edison's already been mentioned, but he was born on 11th of February 1847 by coincidence. Edison's inventions ranged from electronics to medicine to chemical research, including the first practical incandescent light bulb and the phonograph. 
He had over a thousand patents, exceeding any other American inventor in history. And his career was the quintessential rags to riches success story that made him a folk hero in America. Three quotes from Edison to end the show with. Number one, he said, show me a thoroughly satisfied man and I will show you a failure. So, <laughs> so if this show has left you feeling unsatisfied, don't think of yourself as a failure. Uh, number two, just because something doesn't do what you planned it to do doesn't mean it's useless. So take heart, Pamela. <laughs> And number three, genius is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration, which proves what we already knew, Prince Andrew is no genius. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you and good night.